Hello, you're listening to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. This is part five of Recovery, our series that looks back at crises from history and how the world recovered from them. We've looked at the Black Death, then a devastating earthquake that destroyed Lisbon in 1755, and then on to the First and Second World Wars. In this episode, we're heading east to explore what happened after the collapse of one of the 20th century's most powerful states. The dissolution of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, better known as the USSR in 1991, saw the creation of 15 newly independent countries. It brought an end to a highly centralised economy and the strict control from Moscow of nearly 300 million people living across 11 time zones. The Conversation's global affairs editor and Ant Hill podcast producer Gemma Ware has the story of what happened next, how Russia and its former satellite states recovered from this enormous structural change. The writing may have been on the wall for a couple of years, but when the Soviet Union was finally dissolved at the end of 1991, it was a massive shock to the system for millions of people. The communist regimes of the Eastern Bloc in countries such as Poland, Czechoslovakia and Hungary had begun to fall in the late 1980s in a wave of revolutions. And in the months before December the 25th, 1991, when Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as president of the USSR and Boris Yeltsin took over as president of the new Russian Federation, many of the former Soviet states had declared independence. For these post-communist countries, the transition from a state-controlled command economy to a market-driven capitalist one was a hugely complex structural change. What followed was what's come to be known as shock therapy. Post-communist states, advised by teams of Western consultants, were suddenly subject to mass privatisation and market reforms. Price controls were lifted. State support which had been such a fundamental part of everybody's way of life in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, was withdrawn. This remedy, aimed at speeding up the transition of the region from communism to capitalism, was hugely damaging. Many of the post-Soviet countries experienced soaring hyperinflation, plummeting GDP and severe poverty. The recovery from the brutal economic crisis of the 1990s happened at different rates for different countries. Nearly 30 years later, the legacy of this period continues to have an impact across the region. To talk about what happened in the 1990s and the transition that the region went through, I've got three experts on the line with me. Larry King is Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a Research Associate at Cambridge University's Judge Business School. Hello. Elizabeth Schimfossel is a lecturer in Sociology and Policy at Aston University. Hello. And Joe Crotty is a Professor of Management and Director of the Institute for Social Responsibility at Edge Hill University. Hi there. So Joe, I'm going to start with you. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of December 1991, what was the immediate economic impact of the collapse of this Soviet system? Well, at the time, uh, some of that economic impact was quite difficult to judge. We had very bad data. And also there seemed to be predictions about mass unemployment, 30 million unemployed and so on. And that didn't seem to happen. So at the beginning, it was quite difficult 
to judge. Also, because the country went through a rapid shock therapy and privatisation process, everything went up in the air. And so a lot of the judgments that we make about the economic impact of transition we've done post hoc, but if you were living through it, it was changing by hour. And I would say probably the, the biggest change was that you moved from a very certain life where you knew you had a job and a holiday and you could access healthcare and education when you needed it to total uncertainty and not knowing what your life was going to be like maybe tomorrow. And so you were living in in between Belarus and Russia in the 90s, is that right? What was it like? Yes, um, I also did go to a couple of the Central Asian states during that time, but predominantly in Belarus and the Russian Federation. Um, It was a very interesting experience. Um, In Belarus, I was living there during hyperinflation. So you would go to work in the morning and the exchange rate would be one thing. At lunchtime, it would be different. And when you came home at night, it would be different again. And I never thought I would experience that in my lifetime. Uh, something that you learnt about in school in the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s. People going to the shops with suitcases full of money. That's what I imagined hyperinflation to be and was something of the past. And now I was actually living through it. And similarly, Russian Federation experienced hyperinflation and they reissued their banknotes. They had new rubles, but eventually they had to add zeros onto those ruble notes and then latterly later in the 90s they had a revaluation where they took the zeros off but this was caused by the fact that the soviet ruble had nominally been worth one pound sterling during the soviet period and part of shock therapy was just to let these currencies freely float on exchange rate markets so uh, one they had to find their own value and secondly there was a lot of cash if you like, circulating in the old Soviet Union because there wasn't a lot to spend your money on and stuff was cheap. And so all of a sudden you had things to spend your money on. That might be boxes of ice cream that were being sold on street corners when it was minus five. And so this was also pumping inflationary pressure into the economy as people suddenly could spend their cash balances, although they, of course, got eroded quite quickly. So can you just explain for someone who's heard the term shock therapy, what it was in practice and what the rationale behind it was? Well, shock therapy, as you said in your introduction, was really um, conceived by a group of Western academics as a way of cementing a market-based economy into the succession states of the Soviet Union so that it could not be reversed. And I think the motivation for that came from what is known as the August coup attempt in the Soviet Union in August 1991, where a group of hardliners decided to try and overthrow Mikhail Gorbachev. They could see this tidal wave of reform coming from Eastern Europe and um, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. And they thought, well, perestroika is not helping us. We want this over, perestroika restructuring Gorbachev's reform. So we'll try and take control. And this coup lasted 48 hours and ended with Boris Yeltsin rather famously standing on a tank in the middle of Moscow, an image that went around the world. So shock therapy was really about making these changes irreversible. It was about privatising state-owned enterprises, of which in the Russian Federation there was well over 100,000 if you counted all small and medium-sized enterprises. Letting currency float freely, letting it have its own level, and also letting prices and the allocation of resources be undertaken by the market. So previously, this would have been set by the state. 
So that was the rationale. That's what it was. But it had many unforeseen consequences, many, many that these so-called Western advisors or wise men had not foreseen. And so the shock in shock therapy was was enormous. How, how did employers and employees try to keep going through this turbulence and, and the inflation and this quite quick shift of these market-based reforms? Well, I think you have to understand a little bit about how uh, the Soviet Union was structured economically. Rather than have uh, the market deciding where a business was located or what the economy would actually produce, instead this was directed by the state. So you had uh, things called monotowns, where you would have one factory, one town, and pretty much everybody in that town worked at that factory. And you also had regional specialisation, so everything within a particular industry was undertaken within a specific region. So a good example of that was the Ivanova region, which is just outside of Moscow, and there they used to produce all of the textiles for the whole of the Soviet Union. So if you imagine that you are a textile region deep inside the old Soviet Union, producing textiles probably of relatively poor quality and not appropriate to world markets, transportation alone is probably going to prevent you from being competitive in a globalised economy. But also the product you're making is not appropriate for that. And so, as I said at the beginning, there was great projection that you would have 30 million unemployed and these all of these enterprises would collapse instantly. But actually, that wasn't what happened. Instead, firms tried to keep hold of their labour, as in not make them unemployed, partly because they would then have to pay them severance. But also because the employees themselves at the beginning were motivated to stay connected to that enterprise. The enterprise also provided your healthcare, your housing, schooling, after school clubs, all of those things. And so what happened was instead firms either sent people on administrative leave, unpaid leave, paid them very little, let them clock in, let them go off moonlighting a taxi and then come back and clock out. And of course, if you were working in this taxi, in this grey economy, moonlighting, you could keep that money and you didn't have to pay any tax on it. But as this progressed, enterprises started to run out of money. And so what they started to do was pay each other in goods. And then they started paying their employees in goods. And of course, eventually the employees realised that if you're all being paid in tins of paint, which I very sadly saw myself on the side of the road one afternoon, in Samara, which is a town um, in the Urals, uh, you pretty much realise that if everybody's being paid in tins of paint, those tins of paint very quickly become worth absolutely nothing. And so employees were being paid in goods which they then couldn't transfer into cash. So firms were reluctant to shed labour officially, but what emerged instead was hidden unemployment. And that didn't really resolve itself until the 1998 financial crisis when Russia couldn't repay um, some of its international debt. Thanks so much for explaining what it was like in, in that sense. Larry, I wanted to turn to, to you next to just say, okay, so here's the situation we're in in the early 90s. But did some countries start recovering quicker than others? And, and, and what was going on in, in terms of comparing different countries to, to others? Well, shock therapy typically could be described as having three big components, um, as Joe said. So liberalization of prices externally and internally. Um, privatization, and also stabilization, uh, what we would now call austerity. And all of these policies made it very difficult 
for firms to successfully restructure for different reasons. So essentially, those countries which did shock therapy most assiduously performed the worst. So those countries which did radical privatization programs like Russia, where they privatized 80% of the firms in their country within two years were disastrous. Other countries like Poland didn't privatize large enterprises very quickly. Um, They did it much more slower and more gradually. They did much better. Poland's a good example, in fact. The shock therapy, the whole idea was to have true prices and to allow the market and private, the incentive from private property, guide restructuring. And so the more countries didn't do this shock therapy, the better they did. So uh, Poland initially implemented a pretty radical shock therapy. But by 1994, after a couple years of this policy, they basically reversed course. A new government came in, a new left-wing government with a finance minister, Kobotko, and they relied much more on the state to pick winners. And the state helped firms restructure before they were privatized. So there's not an agreement on this. But in my analysis, the less shock therapy firms did, the better they recovered. So you mean, you mean there's actually dispute about whether the gradual approach or the real shock approach was the most effective? Is that what you're saying? Among professional economists and social scientists, even though I think the evidence is fairly clear, many people would disagree. I think one of the reasons for this is that many professional economists were advisors, especially kind of high-end professional economists, many from Harvard were directly involved in advising these governments, um, and they didn't want to admit that shock therapy contributed to these disastrous outcomes. So unfortunately, there's still scholarly disagreement, although I think the evidence is pretty clear. So we talked about Poland, so that was obviously not within the USSR, but obviously a a post-communist state. But what about within the, the Soviet bloc? Did the Baltic states, for example, recover slightly quicker and better than say, some of the central Soviet states? So actually, there's a lot of variation within each region. So if you go to Central Asia, you could compare Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. Um, And Uzbekistan, in the first decade, had a much better recovery than Kazakhstan, even though Kazakhstan was much more developed, had higher levels of education, and should have done better. And the main difference is that Uzbekistan didn't do radical privatization. You could also compare Belarus and Russia, for example, in the European part of the former Soviet Union. Uh, Belarus also didn't do the radical privatization, and they also did better. The Baltics are different. You have variation within the Baltics. They initially had a, a steep decline, and they performed better. And they were essentially, and especially Estonia, received massive amounts of foreign investment. Remember, these are teeny countries. And they were essentially incorporated into Scandinavian capitalist systems. This was a deliberate political policy on Estonia's end, for example, to as a hedge against Russian uh, influence. They wanted Western ownership. So uh, across regions, you could compare countries, and those that were more true believers in the shock therapy did worse, both within the Soviet Union and outside of the Soviet Union. And 
you, you mentioned earlier that Poland's interesting because its government was kind of forced to change course by an election. Was there public backlash in other countries against shock therapy? This is such an enormous change to what people were used to. What kind of other political convulsions did this lead to? Well, the biggest and most consequential one, of course, was in Russia itself. In 1993, the Duma, which had empowered Yeltsin, the the Russian um, parliament, had wanted to reverse shock therapy, much like Poland. And Yeltsin bombed his own parliament with the backing of the West, which is what they did not do in Poland. So there was this reaction in Russia. And unfortunately, uh, we didn't allow the democratic process to play out. You know, there was a, a balance of power within Russia that the West tipped in favor of shock therapy. So I think that's the biggest example. But there was all sorts of uh, conflict all over the post-communist world about shock therapy and going forward. One of the the things that you have looked at subsequently is kind of why that is. And, and one of the things you look at is what this did to mortality and the number of people who died in this period. Can you explain what you what you found in your research? So I think most people are unaware, but in the former Soviet Union in the first decade, there was a massive mortality crisis. Something like 7 million excess deaths occurred. For a 15-year-old male in Russia, your life expectancy dropped to similar to a 15-year-old male in Mozambique. So this is a dramatic decline in life expectancy. Life expectancy for men decreased by six years. This is unprecedented outside of a war or famine, or very briefly during, for example, the pandemic of 1918. So a huge spike in mortality. And what my research has shown is that one of the main drivers of this has been radical privatization programs. So countries that pursued very radical privatization programs had higher mortality overall. We did a study looking at monotowns that were previously mentioned within the Soviet Union, and we picked towns which were very similar to each other in all respects. Only one experienced rapid privatization, and one had slow privatization, and you got much higher mortality rates in uh, the towns with very speedy privatization. And this mostly affected men, much less than women. And the main mechanism was mostly crisis of meaninglessness. People, even if they didn't immediately leave their jobs, they didn't do much work at their jobs. They didn't really have much to do. And then this especially affected people with lower levels of education. They went from being the backbone of the Soviet economy to being superfluous, kind of having no real social role. So kind of a dying from a lack of being needed to do something, the inability to support their families, created what in the U.S. we often call deaths of despair. So this led to a large increase in alcohol consumption, violence, suicide, homicide, accidents. So it was being essentially driven by shock therapy reforms. Now, we were able to estimate this effect for privatization, and it's much harder to estimate it for the other components of shock therapy, but there's no reason to think that those components also weren't implicated in the mortality crisis. Okay. And I mean, it's the same across the region, was it? You saw, found the same effect across the region? Yes. Yeah. So we, we've done different studies. We compared 
different countries, and we also looked at towns within Russia and also at regions within Russia, and we have a consistent, consistent story. Turning from that, Larry, I'm going to now bring in Elizabeth. You've talked about who, who was hardest hit by privatization, but Elizabeth, you look at the other side of the coin, I guess. So who was doing well out of this moment? So can you explain what was going on during the 90s that actually made a lot of people rich? Right at the start, during the shock therapy, it was a time when Joe said before people wanted to buy new products and, 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 and things. It was kind of also a time of very raw new capitalism and trading was basically happening on the street in terms of street markets and things like that. And among the billionaires I interviewed, there was quite a number of people who started off exactly in that way they were trading in calculators, electronics, decoders, um, often they took their own car, one of them uh, to China, uh, loaded it, a whole car loads, brought them back to Moscow and sold them on the street. What is a bit odd about that, or very uh, characteristic, they often refer back to the time to model themselves, fancy themselves as breaks to riches, as self-made entrepreneurs, which is not quite true. Most of the people were uh, born into in quite privileged intelligentsia families, uh, families of, of engineers, doctors, scientists, and so on, and either had jobs in science, academia, research institutes, things like that, or were studying at quite prestigious Moscow universities and basically realized very quickly that trade is a, is a gold mine and took the time and um, set the start to, to the businesses. What followed after that was that many of them set up banks. A lot of the banking in the early 90s was happening in, in some of the cases of the people interviewed in the basements or the parents' basements where they tried to invest their profits into and get um, a money flow going around. And so there was this new class of elite people who were kind of gradually taking advantage of the situation and then were also able to take advantage when the waves of privatization kicked in too? Yes, yes. As Joe said before, there was this group of reformers, uh, she called them hardliners, who were very keen to make uh, all the reform irreversible and uh, also to establish a new entrepreneurial class. What they did first was uh, to introduce voucher privatization in 1992, which meant that every Russian citizen got a voucher of about $25 and could invest it, exchange it, and so on. Most people didn't know what to do with it, and some were quite clever and bought them up. Among them, for example, is um, Romana Bravovic and Michael Friedman, and they managed to accumulate quite some money uh, during the time. Uh, what also happened during the time was that many um, bureaucrats or the directors of formerly Soviet um, big factories bought up their workers' vouchers, and in that way, took over the factories they used to run uh, previously. The biggest um, and most chaotic thing were the 1994 loans for share auction. And that was something where um, an idea by Potanin, uh, an oligarch, where um, the government uh, desperately needed money. And uh, the idea was for bankers and the, the newly rich to loan the government money in exchange for big shares in 
companies was clear they would never ever paid it back. In that way, uh, a lot of the biggest uh, assets um, the Russian government had were um, bargained off for a very, very low price. And that brought up uh, the kind of oligarchs we know from a period among them, for example, Khodorkovsky, and, for example, Putanin or also himself, he organized the auction scheme uh, and also uh, auctioned large assets off to himself. It was uh, completely intransparent. What you're describing is a situation where, and from what Larry and Joe have said, is where some people were just you know, struggling to get by on a day-to-day basis, and yet some other people were managing to play the system very cleverly. So what did that do in terms of inequality in, in Russia in the 90s? That was quite um, sharp and quite also spectacular in many ways. Uh, we had in the 90s a situation happening that had never happened before and also not, never afterwards, where from a quite unequal society, of course there were inequalities in Soviet Union, but they were minimal in, in uh, material terms, where a gap came up between rich and poor that in a short period of time that had never ever happened before and, and since. And also the wealth accumulation, the rich managed was completely unique. And while so many people got poor, they set the basis for their wealth. However, in the 2000s, during the oil boom, which was a time when the living standards of the general population went up quite markedly, the rich got richer even more quickly, which meant that inequality widened even more during the 2000s and um, with the 2008 crisis and the 2014 crisis afterwards, uh, the living standards of the uh, population went down again. What is important here is uh, to make a distinction between income inequality and wealth inequality. Income inequality has risen quite a lot, but it's not um, out of the norm in a a global uh, comparison. Whereas wealth inequality has gone completely out of any borders. Uh, Credit Suisse by um, 2013 classified Russia as the most unequal country in the world, apart from some uh, offshore islands where there are resident billionaires, in terms of wealth inequality, far outside, kind of basically off the radar uh, in comparison to any other country in the world. Elizabeth, you've talked there about kind of what some of the legacy of of what happened there has had for modern day Russia. But Joe or Larry, do you want to come in and and say what what legacies the transitions had? And, you know, now looking back on it, what kind of recovery it was, what legacy it has for today? Actually, I wanted to pick up on something that that Larry said in terms of um, mortality rates and perhaps a sort of changing nature of masculinity and how that in contemporary Russia has manifest itself uh, through domestic violence. Russia has one of the highest domestic violence levels in Europe and actually was decriminalised by Putin in 2017. And so the legacy of some of these things stretches a long way back from that mortality crisis and perhaps this changing of identity to something that is still happening on a, a daily basis, probably happening right now. It's very worrying statistics. Rowdy, did you want to come in there? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest legacy, I mean, there are several legacies for uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, because the economic transition was botched so terribly, it basically led to a hollowing out of the medium and high tech sectors. So Russia now is very much dependent on raw material exports 
and they lost a lot of manufacturing uh, sectors, which provide a lot of value added and higher wages. Um, so it's kind of turned Russia into more like a, a country like Nigeria in terms of the structure of the economy. The other thing that it did is it really transformed the political and economic system in that to be in big business these days means that you have to be politically connected. Uh, if you fall out of favor with the Kremlin, your property can get renationalized and redistributed to some other oligarchic group. Uh, this is kind of the basis of illiberal democracy. Uh, so you have capitalism, but unlike we have, say, in the United States or in the UK, who is in power has incredible implications for ownership, uh, which is not the case um, in Western-style uh, capitalism. So this means lots of things, that you can't really have free and fair elections. There's a huge incentive to pick the next winner. Uh, it means you can't really have a free press, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the entire political economy has been transformed by uh, the repercussions of shock therapy. Perhaps, Elizabeth, you could come in there too, because obviously that's something... That, I mean, you've interviewed a lot of the, of these people, but is it the case both in Russia and other post-Soviet states? I guess it's very similar in many places. And there's also one thing, Laurie, to said, which I'd like to pick up: the privatizations I mentioned before from '95, the Lons Fischer auction, were necessary for the Kremlin, for Yeltsin. They couldn't pay any any salaries of teachers, um, medics, and so on. And Yeltsin's re-election campaign was coming up in 96 and they were completely dependent on these oligarchs to finance uh, the election campaign and that was something which has ever since had very heavy impact because all kind of activists and so on were joining in and journalists particularly using the propaganda methods they'd learned at Soviet times. So there was a campaign in order to protect democracy, but what they used were highly undemocratic means. And that's something that had a huge impact on civil society and journalism and so on ever since, and also facilitated Putin's authoritarianism to rise. We're doing this series because of we're looking at the recovery from this strange and, and, and worrying moment that we're in right now and the, with the coronavirus and, and the economic crises that it's precipitating around the world. And I wondered, um, perhaps Joe, I can ask you first and then ask each of you in turn, do you see any any parallels with what's going on now to, to what was happening in this transition period in the 90s? Any, any mistakes, any lessons that we could learn from? Well, I think in the UK right now, through lockdown and furlough, as in the state actually paying people's wages, um, where they can't go to work, we almost certainly have a form of hidden unemployment. There were sectors, particularly retail, that were already on life support before lockdown and arts and creative industries that were heavily subsidised by the state. And I would imagine that there are many people right now who are being paid on furlough that will not have a job to go back to. And I think we've already witnessed some of the other things we saw during this period. We saw downskilling. So people in an enterprise who have been very highly skilled in the Russian Federation would do any job to carry on working. And so they would downskill. And we've seen that. We've seen many people, professionals working in Sainsbury's, stacking shelves. 
And I wonder how many of those downskilled jobs might become permanent for them if they don't have a job to go back to. So it'd be interesting to see how much furlough is hiding unemployment, but also whether it will finally get us to a point where we can have a more grown-up conversation about retail, our high streets, how we fund the arts in the United Kingdom and so on. Because I think we were in a place which were unsustainable prior to this, and maybe this will kickstart a conversation, hopefully. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Larry, what about what about you? Do you think there are any parallels? I think there are some parallels. I mean, it was a quite different situation, but uh, I think one is that relying on incentives from private ownership and markets to provide for people's essential needs doesn't work. There's no reason to expect the market that everything will work out uh, and that people will get what they need. And there's lots of examples in the current crisis from that. Uh, I think another takeaway, and this was, we didn't talk much about it, this was the component of shock therapy of stabilization or, or austerity. And I think this was a disastrous policy in Russia, and it will be a disastrous policy now if we get prematurely concerned with balancing the budget, etc. Basically, I think the experience, lots of evidence, overwhelming evidence shows that Keynes is right, and that during a recession, the government needs to spend more money. It's not like a household. And I hope we don't forget that, that we're going to need government propping up aggregate demand and stimulating the economy for a long time. Absolutely. And we're actually turning to look at 2008 in our final episode of this series. So we'll, we'll get into a bit of that, those questions about austerity there. Elizabeth, just to, to finish, do you have any, any things that you'd pick up on, any lessons or, or parallels or, or warnings about the recovery that was back then in the 90s and, and what we might see now? If you look at Russia itself, there's a very clear lesson, uh, which was that once the social infrastructure and particularly the health system collapsed in the 90s, it was never ever brought back to a state that was uh, sustainable and the rich would not care about it the slightest bit. And many rich, of course, have their healthcare, the medical uh, provisions completely long uh, outsourced to somewhere in uh, Switzerland or, or France or Austria or Britain or elsewhere. And once the corona crisis hit, it was very clear that desolate states of, of the hospitals, if they were dependent on uh, a ventilator or something of the sort, many tried to build up little clinics in their own houses but that can never, especially in intensive care, if you need a lot of specialists, can never ever provide the same medical care for them at home. And that was something, of course, where their own stinginess and lack of care, and of course, also the government's uh, lack of care to tax them properly in a way that they could uh, restore the health system would, would kick back for themselves. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. So thanks very much to Joe Crotty, Professor of Management at Edge Hill University. No worries, thank you. And Elizabeth Schimfossil, Lecturer in Sociology and Policy at Aston University. Thank you. And Larry King, Professor of Economics at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you very much. That was Gemma Ware, The Conversation's Global Affairs Editor and Ant Hill Podcast Producer. We'll be back next week with the final part of our recovery series looking at the fallout from the 2008 global financial crisis, which will massively shape our recovery from coronavirus ahead. In the meantime, you can read more about the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
and also find some of the latest research into coronavirus on theconversation.com, all written by academic experts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends about us or give us a review wherever you listen. And you can also donate. The Anthill is produced by The Conversation UK. We're an independent news media outlet that exists purely to take reliable, informed voices direct to a wide audience. If you're able to support our work, please go to donate.theconversation.com forward slash UK. This episode of The Anthill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.